Welcome, and congratulations. I am delighted that you could make it. Getting here wasn't easy, I know. In fact, I suspect it was a little tougher than you realize. To begin with, for you to be here now, trillions of drifting atoms had somehow to assemble in an intricate and curiously obliging manner to create you. It's an arrangement so specialized and particular that it has never been tried before and will only exist this once. For the next many years, we hope, these tiny particles will uncomplainingly engage in all the billions of deft, cooperative efforts necessary to keep you intact and let you experience the supremely agreeable but generally underappreciated state known as existence. Why atoms take this trouble is a bit of a puzzle. Being you is not a gratifying experience at the atomic level. For all their devoted attention, your atoms don't actually care about you. Indeed, don't even know that you are there. They don't even know that they are there. They are mindless particles, after all, and not even themselves alive. It is a slightly arresting notion that if you were to pick yourself apart with tweezers, one atom at a time, you would produce a mound of fine atomic dust, none of which had ever been alive but all of which had once been you. Yet somehow for the period of your existence they will answer to a single rigid impulse, to keep you, you. The bad news is that atoms are fickle, and their time of devotion is fleeting. Fleeting indeed. Even a long human life adds up to only about 650,000 hours, and when that modest milestone flashes into view, or at some other point thereabouts, for reasons unknown, your atoms will close you down, then silently disassemble and go off to be other things. And that's it for you. Still, you may rejoice that it happens at all. Generally speaking, in the universe, it doesn't, so far as we can tell. This is decidedly odd, because the atoms that so liberally and congenially flock together to form living things on Earth are exactly the same atoms that decline to do it elsewhere. Whatever else it may be, at the level of chemistry, life is fantastically mundane. Carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen, a little calcium, a dash of sulfur, a light dusting of other very ordinary elements, nothing you wouldn't find in any ordinary pharmacy, and that's all you need. The only thing special about the atoms that make you is that they make you. That is, of course, the miracle of life. It's not that some people are just too dumb to understand it. I mean, that's complete nonsense, right? It can be taught to anyone. Uh, it is intuitive to some degree, and it's not like an intelligence thing. And, you know, we had some placards, one of them which said the pre-factual point that Zionism is racism. You know, it's not just a moral stand, it's a political stand. What you're talking about is the role that Israel plays securing the interests of US and British imperialism in the Middle East. And it would be talking about Iraq or Afghanistan or something. Today, where I am, and I like understand these conflicts that have literally been going on since I was born. It's just like horrifying. It's not. It's not British culture. It's just the world's culture. They love stories. They love this idea that there is this nation that looks like this. I think it's a distraction from the class struggle, to be honest. 
and welcome to the latest episode of Revolutionary Lumpen Radio. I am your co-host, Ryan, also known as the Zen Marxist. Here with me is Shibby, also known as Shibby. What's poppin'? And today we have the one, the only, the honourable, Brett O'Shea from the Revolutionary Left Radio. And we are very happy to have this guest and very excited to have him here. Yes, same, because what other Marxists can we talk about? The cosmos, rev left, fauna, flora, life, consciousness, psychedelics, ego, solidarity, death, neuroscience, quantum physics, space, and NASA's planned mission in 2024 to go to the moon and beyond to put man and woman on Mars. So if you want HD footage of all of that, good stuff, it's coming up. But first and foremost, let's just shout out to your patrons, Jake, Joe, Rev Left Radio, and Victor. Thank you so much for your support. It goes a long way, as Mark said. Money has a social value. I mean, obviously, if we had a million pounds off Patreon, that would validate everything we're saying. But, you know, everything you are <laughs> saying will get to a million, but everything you do contribute does help a lot it helps us obviously survive because we live under capitalism but yeah without further ado let's just dive into it with my mate b-dog brett o'shea from rev left radio welcome to revolutionary lump and radio brett we're so happy to have you on here to discuss all of the themes that i've just mentioned and to our listeners yeah we were so excited that i even had to redo some of what i said because i was a, i was a mumbling mess and i was like I, I couldn't even speak it like I, I was almost speechless when it comes to like the interview because i was actually interviewing brett o'shea can you imagine well i mean dreams can come true that's materialism if we had the goddamn people power. But yeah, anyway, I'm, I'm rambling already I'm, and I'm looking at editing this out, but then I'll be doing this forever, just speaking to myself into a microphone. But yeah, Brett, what is Revolutionary Left Radio? What's the purpose? What's the point? This is also a question that the Lumpen community has also asked me. They don't understand why the hell I'm doing a podcast and let alone a Marxist podcast. You know, it's obviously to spread class consciousness and whatnot, but what was your reason? And hopefully we can draw out the reason for Revolutionary Lump and Radio, you know, in kind of the, the same question and answer. What's the point? Okay. Yeah, and I, I do want to get back to what we were just discussing um, because I think there's uh, some really interesting overlap between, you know, Marxist communism, Buddhism, and physics when it comes to um, thinking about the cosmos and the world and our place in it. So I'm sure we'll get to that eventually, and I have a bunch to say on that. But uh, just to start off with a discussion about <clears throat> Rev Left Radio, it really organically arose out of organizing um, here in the the, the great plains of the United States after Trump got elected and there was a lot of uncertainty there was a, there was a rise of just explicit fascism in a way that we haven't seen here in the US for a while I mean fascism is always present especially for black and indigenous communities um, but the sort of explicit nature with, with, with which it arose during and after and still to this day um, surrounding the Trump campaign was very concerning and so a bunch of people in my community 
came together and we were like, we need to really start organizing. We need to take care of people. We need to protect each other. And if this fascist um, uprising is really going to continue to play out, we need to be able to defend one another and take defense seriously. And we also at that time had a couple uh, neo-Nazis in our city uh, who were becoming more um, sort of, you know, uh, you know, they, they were just coming out of the woodwork. They were showing their face on, they were making YouTube channels. They had presences on campus and stuff. And so our first act as an organization was to collect information about these Nazis and then get it out to the community. And we did this flying camp, flyer campaign where we basically hundred, I mean, t- maybe tens of thousands, if not, you know, multiple thousands of flyers. And we put them all over the city including on these fascists front doorsteps and all their neighbors front doorsteps um, calling them out etc and and after that we said you know the, the Nazis went back into hiding they, they took down their YouTube channel they even left the city um, so that was a success but we had to keep up the momentum and one of the things we realized very quickly is that you can't have effective organizing without political education there has to be something that people who are generally interested in perhaps anti-capitalism or anti-fascism there needs to be something that can sort of, you know, suss out those ideas and help people think through the implications of what it means to be anti-capitalist and anti-fascism. And so Rev Left Radio, you know, really grew out of that. That was the second need of our organizing, and it came very quickly after our formation. And so I said, you know, I, I have this like sh- shitty bachelor's degree in philosophy. And although it gives me nothing but student debt, one thing it did give me was the ability to think and talk very clearly about complex ideas. And so, you know, they were like, yeah, Brett, you take over the political education wing of our organization. And that morphed in uh, to Rev Left Radio. And it really is just and still to this day is about political education and you know Fred Hampton a Black Panther revolutionary who was killed in 1968 in Chicago um, he was very adamant about this and it's what made him such an effective organizer he spoke the language of the people in his community he wasn't an elitist he wasn't rich he lived with and among the people we're gonna have to start practicing and that's very hard we got to start getting out there with the people a lot of times we think we're better than the people that's an insult and that's criminal it's gonna take a lot of hard work he understood the need to educate himself first and then turn around and help others get educated um, because he knew that revolutionary energy can really go nowhere or at least has a very severe limit if it's not undergirded uh, by political education, by the understanding of what we're fighting against, what we're fighting for, and what happens when we rise up and try to fight the system. So for all those reasons and more, um, Rev Left got started. And then it was originally meant just to be a local thing. It was like, you know, here in Omaha and maybe some of the surrounding cities, um, you know, this will be something that we can help organize our sort of cadre and whatnot. Um, But it just took off in a way that we never expected and became national and then international um, in its scope. So something about it caught on and I still can't fully figure out what it is, but uh, I'm just humbled by it. And uh, I just I realized that I have a a deep responsibility now that my platform has gotten to a size where so many people do listen a deep responsibility to uh you know cross my t's and dot my i's if you will and and do as much work as i can on my end to really stay as principled as i can and never steer anyone wrong that's that's my big fear is like you know maybe my ignorance will steer somebody wrong and so i'm constantly trying to um you know educate myself in the process of educating others and always always staying humble about it you know realizing that i'm not 
handing down wisdom. I'm learning along with my comrades the world over. Um, and I think that's also a, a huge attraction because people don't feel like they're being lectured at. They feel like they're in on the conversation and learning along with me. And uh, so, so yeah, that's what Rev Left is. And I'm just sort of honored that it's, it's gotten as big as it has. <laughs> yeah. Boss introduction there, but really interesting backstory about how together, you know, you and your organization was able to push fascists out of your area through anti-fascist activity, you know, letting Nazis know that they're not welcome in your area and having them actually leave is, I mean, a best case scenario when it comes to having Nazis in your town, so well done for that. I can also see how you were asked to host Rev Left, how that went from a small communal tool for political education to an international one. Uh, I've never seen your lips in stats, but I can presume that you've pretty much seen or listened to, you know, internationally. And yet there's many reasons for this. I'm sure it is your humility. It is your ability to articulate yourself and other ideas and translate you know theories and concepts from political texts that are from maybe 100 200 years ago and use like excellent examples that everybody can relate to in the modern era i also like to shout out to the astonishing alice your co-host on red menace who does excellent work in, in this manner also and I'll like to shout out to Dave as well, the sound engineer. I don't think he gets as much credit as he is, as he deserves. So there's that. Yeah, really interesting history there. But you know, when it comes to that political education, I think I'm probably the least educated person you've ever spoken to on a podcast ever. So yeah, it comes down to you know why you're such a, an awesome, cool host and a cool guy. Yeah, it's also really interesting how somebody can just listen to a podcast and also hear you develop. Also, it's kind of a story on top of a story. Ryan? I think it's important to just say that, like, you know, whether you're credentialed or not isn't really important, right? Like, the idea that, you know, we should only listen or take information from people who are credentialed or who come from, you know, um, those kind of institutions isn't isn't really important, right? You can, I think Lenin taught Marxism to people who couldn't read and write, you know? So the idea that, you know, you have to be credentialed in order to be listened to or, you know, it's not, it's not a great idea, I don't think. Yeah. In fact, I, I try to put that into practice by, you know, I do have a fair share of academics. There are revolutionary academics that have something to say. And, you know, there's also this idea that, you know, they have something to teach us. But a big part of my show and a, a big chunk of my guests are just regular people that, you know, start off as listeners of the show, reach out to me through Patreon, develop something like a, an online relationship. And then I say, hey, you know, do you want to study this topic and read this book and then come on and talk about this thing with me? And they say, yeah. And, and you know, I, I started doing that as a conscious effort to get away from some of the you know the petty bourgeois obsession with academia and knowing full well that the people that I come from the people in my neighborhood the people that you know raised me they they don't really speak the language of academia they you know there's something to be offered for sure but you know it can get exhausting if all you do is hear the NPR like tones of academics you know talking in jargon that you only half understand and so getting real people to come on the show regular working class people 
giving them a little task, like maybe read this book or do some research over the next month or two on this topic and then we can have a discussion. It's turned out really well. People shine. I mean, I've never had a guest that's let me down. And, you know, most of them are just regular working people, people that are servers in the in the industry or, or like, you know, struggling students um, or whatever it may be. Coming on and shining in that way has been something that's beautiful and shown me the capacity of regular working people to have these conversations. We don't need uh, different, you know, people from different classes coming and telling us about stuff. We can do it ourselves. We can investigate ourselves. And uh, I think that's a powerful thing as well. And, and your show your show highlights that as well. So I think there's that connection between our two shows, definitely. Like this is literally exactly what I'm trying to tell people. I'm trying to tell people with no education who do struggle to grasp, you know, the words used in political theory from these old historical texts. The, you know, these... The, yeah, this is exactly what I'm trying to tell people. I'm trying to tell people who do struggle to grasp the words used in these political theory texts. You know, these are the same people who have went to shitty comprehensive schools that have been underfunded from us from austerity. You know, the, the same people who probably never read anything beyond the text on a video game on the screen or the, the the text on the phone from a social media app that you can come out be a goddamn communist there's people who are going to explain this this theory to you there's people who are going to be able to help you articulate your own thoughts and feelings and use that to empower yourself and others were part of a goddamn struggle here you know, so the, these same people who've spent the whole life on a dole or having to hustle for a living, you know, knowing only the slang relating to the lump and thug life or the language from their city's culture, like they need to know that there's a world of comrades out here to support them, to help educate them so we can turn the knowledge of individual power into people power. I mean, we're literally, there's a whole world of people. I mean, you think you've got loads of mates? Think of how many mates you're going to have when you've got a damn comrade. <laughs> But I'm speaking to Beth O'Shea, so it's a goddamn evidence. Everyone's saying it, proof, it's right there. Just fuck me. There's no amount of festivals that can justify the desperate lives that we have to live and struggle under just to eat another day. There's a better world, and we have to make it together. Ryan, what's your what's your level of education like? Just out of curiosity, you've done psychology, haven't you? Uh, not a university level. I mean, my degree is in cybersecurity management, you know, but I mean, I'm interested in these things, you know, like sociology, psychology, philosophy. Like, I learn about those things generally because, like you say, like, you, everyone has internet access these days, so anyone can pick up any book at any time and learn about anything, so... Yeah, true, true. Uh, even if you haven't got the time to pick up a book and read whatever to learn, like, you can still just plug in some headphones and listen to some Red Menace or Red Left and listen, in, and listen to that over whatever it is that you're forced to do to make money to survive. Awesome, so with the introductions over, we can now dive into a response to the audio clip played at the start of the pod, describing, you know, tiny atoms in the great expanse that is the cosmos. What is the cosmos? Why have humans stared up at, it, at the stars and wondered and just how is it connected to us spiritually? What does it say for the nature of our reality and how we should behave whilst being a conscious product of the cosmos we'd love to hear your thoughts on this Brett. 
for sure yeah when, when i was listening to that that recording or just any sort of you know understanding of, of how the cosmos operates something is overlapping between you know something like buddhism something like marxism something like physics and that is this idea of, of dialectics which you know can be a vague term and a lot of times you know it's kind of hard to, to pin down exactly what we mean by by dialectics but something at the core of all these philosophies is that they're inherently in the universe there's no separation between things you know humans like to uh, categorize discrete objects in the world and put them in these little categories you know that's a tree that's a rock that's a person that's a cloud right and uh, obviously it makes evolutionary sense for us to be able to discern between different objects and our brains were obviously molded by evolution but something that we lose sight of is that you know inherently everything is a web of life everything is deeply interconnected and on the level of physics whether you're talking about general sort of relativity or you're talking about like the the weird world of quantum mechanics both of those iterations of physics get at the idea that there actually is no separation you can think of things like spooky action at a distance or whatever or just how um you know the the, the planets interact gravitationally with one another things cannot be separated and that goes also for for philosophies you were talking earlier should be about communists and and, you know, we have more to say about the world and life than just politics. And a big reason for that is because everything is interconnected. You can't talk about outward political fights without talking about, say, the inner psychology of the people engaged in those fights or the environmental, um, you know, arena from which those life forms, us, our minds, bubble up out of. Um, you know, we, we, we have this idea whether it's from our, our Christian tradition in the West or whatever, that we somehow come into the universe, that, you know, there's a God that exists outside the universe and we get placed in it um, from the outside. And even when we've, you know, sort of shooken off the shackles of that religious, explicit religious thinking, it still sort of infiltrates at, at a subconscious level how we think about the world, that, you know, I'm separate from that other person. That person's liberation struggle over in the Philippines has nothing to do with my struggle here in the U.S. or in the U.K., um, and that can be a very nefarious and obviously even bourgeois way of thinking about the world, hyper-individualistic, if you will. And so just to come to the, this, these conversations with a deep understanding that everything is interconnected, everything is interdependent, the separateness is a fundamental illusion, and to be aware of that is the first step in sort of overcoming uh, that, that uh, illusion of separateness. And once you do do that, on the political realm, you begin to realize that your freedom, your liberty, your um, happiness even is inexorably tied up with everybody else's. And that gives rise to ideas like nobody is free until we're all free. You know, internationalism, your struggle in the UK is one with my struggle here in the US is one with the struggle of Palestinians in the Mideast, etc. And, and that can be a very powerful way of looking at the world on all levels, but particularly political and I think it's communists as opposed to fascists or liberals or conservatives or any any other political formation that takes that idea of interconnectedness as seriously as it should be taken and that is why um, solidarity is so important to us while it's not important to other other political formations. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, that's always why I've seen Marxism as sort of superior to all other ideologies, because there is actually a proper uh, philosophical foundation to this entire thing. It's a it's a holistic way of viewing the world, and I mean, when you view other um, you know ideologies, you just don't you don't see that. It isn't there. It isn't grounded and rooted in a sort of uh, in, a, in a proper philosophical base that permeates the entire ideology. You know, absolutely. Very interesting. This is going to be a good episode. So, yeah, this, these phrases are such a web of life bubble up out of the earth I love that because we are obviously we all stemmed from one point in time like our distant ancestor is the big bang it's that meteorite and that comet that come together just as you got them sperm hit your mother's egg all of these things are so rare so astronomically rare but they are literally materials coming together to bubble up out of the earth together and it's interesting that phrase because so much of us is water it's electricity that's hit the earth from lightning i imagine <laughs> from this static that's grown up of other things just coming together you know it's marvelous and yet just as ryan said it's showing it's so important to use Marxism as our base of ideology. You know, we use historical materialism to describe these phenomena. You know, this simply put, that's just to, to prove to us, even though we can see it with our own eyes, but there's people who are naive out there and think that capitalism is the only thing that's ever been and never will be. But, you know, we, we know that this is true just from the simple fact that both a seed and the plant comes from the other and none of them exist within the same space of time separately yeah it's dialectical so mm -hmm. another interesting thing there you mentioned spooky science quantum physics you know regarding quantum entanglement and i just really want to share my own like theory on this from you know my life's observation right look look right the bourgeoisie have got that much power so the way that we use our minds to basically describe how we create the world like it's our brains that, that affect the world and then we can materialize houses up out of our imagination the bourgeoisie have had that much power they've shaped the entire world the entire world may essentially be like a, a motherboard and I'll explain why because you can see like the bourgeoisie the ruling class being the power supply they're the ones given power uh, to, to this motherboard and you can see like Hollywood being the graphics process you can see like the army and military being the RAM you could see like the schools and education system being the processor so all of these things as well as private property shape the motherboard and like just just an example like we are the electrons we are literally forms of energy in this goddamn bag of flesh and we can only go where our capitalists want us to go through the motherboard so uh, a way i link this into quantum entanglement is 
Like that bourgeoisie has trained somebody to be a McDonald's worker in the United States and then somebody in the UK is doing the exact same thing. You know, how many people are playing Call of Duty, EA or whoever has made that game, they know that people are gonna move the controls and that same buttons in the same way that that bourgeoisie knows that the person in the US has got a flip because the exact same way in the UK. So whether we like it or not, we're literally behave like on a neural level the signals from our brain to move our arm in such a way or to move uh, our thumbs and, and fingers on a joystick the exact same way is happening all around the world so i mean we're literally copying each other but copying that state of consciousness that th these these neurons firing that this bourgeoisie has you know basically done in in order to profit with us so we don't have freedom in the same way that mark zuckerberg knows that if he senses this notification using dopamine and whatnot we're gonna do the exact same thing as loads of other people so quantum entanglement happens on uh, an astronomical cosmos like cosmos scale but it also happens on, on a smaller um, individual level in our brain and you know call me a madman for having these theories but there's going to be a lot more of these similar theories coming up but you know these companies and businesses use neuroscience and quantum physics in order to become better people uh, in businesses and to make us more susceptible to to basically what they they want so our freedoms are limited and we as marxists don't really talk about uh, you know quantum physics or you know, you know neuroscience when I, I don't see why not because we're, we're affected by dopamine and all that so you, you know let's just look at how it, it makes us behave but going back to the motherboard like i know this from my parkour days that say we are the electrons that the power module is sending by it because they control obviously who's born who's not born if they wanted they could obviously just say yeah nobody's allowed to be born or they could you know, do, do as they do in the United States and then have, have like, you know, money tied in with birth. So you're only going to do that if obviously you can pay for a baby and whatnot. And, you know, that that's a whole different kettle of fish. But the point being is, like, we as electrons are, are destined to come from one place and we move through this motherboard known as the capitalist world. Yeah in such a preordained way like we know we're going to be born we're going to have to go to school we're going to have to work in a certain kind of workplace and then we all know that we're going to die and go into a certain hole in the ground we can't ever stray away from that and i know this from your parkour days because if we did ever stray away from where our electrons where our bodies and and our life force was supposed to go then the police will come after us because we're straying onto private property so yeah you know what, what are your thoughts on that yeah there's two things that I, I thought of when you when you were talking um and you're talking about the motherboard and like you know alan watts uh he, he talks about this idea of like if, you know, if aliens came to earth and the first thing they would see from a distance right is you know on the on the dark side of the planet as the planet moved towards nighttime all these lights come on and uh as you said this this is interwoven circuitry and you know the the cars uh driving into the cities in the morning and then out to the, to the suburbs or to the rural areas at night or whatever and from that perspective uh it radically transforms the 
the way that you think about human civilization as this one interconnected node and, and the individuals are you know to go to your to your neuroscientific analogy uh, in different independent neurons but they're all deeply connected and that neuron individually depends on the entire network for its existence and its efficacy but you know and, and then also Carl Sagan right he talked about the pale blue dot same sort of perspectal shift of zooming way out and looking and seeing that everything is inherently unified but you're right when you're on the ground especially under the sway of, of bourgeois ideology everybody is an individual everybody has to make their own way you're not going to get much help go out and, and do your shit and if you fail it's your fault a division of labor right it's not we're not workers coming together to democratically plan the way that we create and produce and distribute the means of life, but rather we have an overlord that tells us your one specific task is to, you know, flip the burger and your one task is to you know, cash out the, the uh, customer and all that money that you're generating, you'll get a couple cents, but I'm going to usurp that as my profit. And, and be, because we live that way for so long, we begin to uh, we begin to understand our own lives on those terms, our our own lives on the on the individualistic basis, and whether a deep love of science or a practice of meditation or even a use of psychedelics can be the thing that can push you out of that individualism and even Marxism, right? All these are mechanisms by which we shift that perception away from bourgeois individualism and hyper division towards something closer to connection and interdependence um and so yeah that can be incredibly powerful and marxism fits perfectly well in that perspectal shift yeah interesting alan watts sounds like an interesting guy and not lastly because his name's watson he's talking so much about electricity but it's also good to be <laughs> reassured that there's people out there thinking the same kind of thoughts as me regarding these existential uh, ideas but it just reinforces the fact that that's how it is. Uh, we don't have freedom. We're literally just batteries born to save the bourgeoisie since birth. And just something that pisses me off is like, oh, for months, all these companies and businesses have had the lights on during the, you know, the corona pandemic. Like, they know for a fact that they're going to be closed. But these lights, they're, they're not just to, to, to shape where we can and can't go, but... These lights are constantly shown on, on, on us, so we're seeing like KFC in big lights. They know that they're gonna be closed for the last like four months, but they still got all the lights on in store, out of store, and it's just like that. That's just like going off on one, but it's something that's just really pissed me off that I can't help that 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 notice. But when we talk about these lights, you know, from a, from an outside perspective, from businesses and corporations. Like, you know you're gonna be closed, just turn the goddamn lights off, you're wasting electricity. <laughs> and it's also it's, it's also a form of psychological harassment, you know. We'll never turn the lights off. Everywhere you lurk look is an advertisement for something. Bye, bye, bye. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's definitely psychological harassment. And you did touch upon, you know, breaking out of this psychological paradigm that bourgeoisie keep you trapped in and referring to meditation, you know, hallucinogenics, you know, Buddhism and whatnot. We will go into those subjects. But firstly, let's just talk about, you know, the other life forms on the planet that don't have voices so much. Um, so we'll look at plants, we'll look at animals. i just firstly give some interesting facts about plants that I don't think people actually truly understand in order to help, obviously, people grasp 
plants because of course they are what keep us alive we are made out of them but they don't understand just how beneficial they are to humans in general so what existed before the bourgeoisie shaped the world around us so that we're just mere components mere nodes of electricity in order to fulfill whatever they want on their operating system where they control the mouse um, in the operating system that they know as capitalism there was nature and what is nature nature is the master of craftsmen of molecules created uh, it created an almost inexhaustible array of molecular entities it stands as an infinite resource for drug development novel chemotypes and pharma cuffers and scaffolds for amplification into officious drugs for a, a multitude of disease indignations and other valuable bioactive agents since time immemorial natural products have been the backbone of traditional system of healing throughout the globe and has also been an integral part of history and culture although the use of bioactive products as herbal drug preparations dates back hundreds even thousands of years ago their application as isolated and characterized compounds to modern drug discovery and development started only in the 19th century it has been well documented that not that natural products play critical roles in modern drug development, especially for antibacterial and anti-tumor agents. Even though popularity of the synthetic products increased due to its production cost, time effectiveness, easy quality control, stringent regulation and quick effects, but their safety and efficiency always remain questionable resulting in the dependence on the natural products by more than 80% of the total population in the developing world because of time-tested safety and efficiency. So it's basically saying, yeah, these pharmaceuticals, big pharma, they're not making nothing like ma nature makes for the developing world who benefit a lot more from just natural products. A huge number of natural product derived compounds in various stages of clinical development highlighted the existing viability and significance of the use of natural products as yeah. sources of new drug candidates. But what are these new drug candidates? What are the old drug candidates? How is how are these things healing us? Well, let's just look at you know just a few examples of these natural products that are used in modern medicine today because I don't think that a lot of people actually truly yeah. grasp how much medicine comes from just just plants i'm sure everybody here is going to be aware of caffeine caffeine due to treat fatigue and migraines you find caffeine in coffee beans tea leaves cocoa pods koala nuts and garnier but you also know it in pretty much you know paracetamol you always find some caffeine in there because you know again it's used to treat migraines aspirin again similar it's used for pain relief and anti-clotting the salix in which it's used is found in a willow bark so aspirin the the main components within it that cures your headache and 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 you know blood clots is a willow bark it's a goddamn bark of, of a tree who who would have known cocaine it's used for anesthesia and as a recreational drug Cocaine is derived from the cocoa plant, but yet again it's used in anesthesia if you if you want like a serious like 
like surgery, then you're gonna you're gonna use anesthesia, and and again that comes from a plant. Digitalis, never heard of it. It's but it, um, the leaves on it are used to treat erythemia. It survived from foxglove, if you've heard of that plant. Uh, morphine, codeine, opium, codeine's like a strong, you know, tablet that you use for like headaches, migraines, pain relief. Morphine again is used in serious conditions. Uh, you know, if you've ever been shot at on a war zone, you've probably had morphine to numb the pain or anything like that. So yeah, you've got this codeine, this opium plant to help you. So these are just a few examples, but my point being, how many of these have been annihilated by Monsanto? How many cures for cancer are out there that are now soybean farms for Monsanto? How many of these plants could, could heal us in ways that we can't even imagine, but have been annihilated through capitalism and their just extinction of these plants? Any thoughts on that breath? Yeah, I would even add one more. I don't know if you mentioned this. I, d I don't think I heard it. But uh, ergot, the uh, basis of, of LSD, we think of LSD as being synthesized in a chemistry lab, but it, the, the fundamental core of it is ergot, which is a sort of fungus that grows on grain and wheat, uh, as an interesting aside. But yeah, your overall point is incredibly well taken, and I think it fits perfectly into the broader ideas that we've been discussing of interconnectedness um, because instead of you know that sort of theological idea that we're from outside of the cosmos or the earth and placed onto it the truth is you know f scientifically is that we we bubble up out of the earth the earth is a sort of womb it creates the conditions by which all manner of, of fauna and flora can burst forth and emerge out of it and we are not separate from that and all life on earth has a common ancestor right billions of years ago um, and so that means that everything on earth animals plants everything is deeply genetically scientifically related to one another. I think we share up to 30% of our DNA with like dandelions, for example. Um, not to say anything of all the animals that we share huge chunks of our DNA, you know, chimpanzees over 98% of our DNA. Um, and so we, we can see how all flora and fauna co-evolved on earth. And so it would make sense that um, human, uh, human beings and our brains are receptive to a cacophony of, of different plants and, and how they interact with our brains. You know, a cannabis, for example, um, it acts on our endocannabinoid system, right? So like our brains already have receptors in them that are perfectly matched to the uh, cannabinoids that come out of, of the cannabis plant. So on all these levels, it's it's really incredibly fascinating. And what Big Pharma does is it, you know, it takes, it isolates, it creates, it patents, and then it profits off of these things that at the core of them are our shared property, right? They're, they're common to all of us because they come up out of the earth along with us. And so what they do is they build fences around these things. Well, this is ours. And if you want it now for your headache or whatever, you're going to have to pay us money. Um, and that's just another way in which the capitalist class is, is deeply parasitic. One thing that I do on my off time when I'm not doing politics or taking care of my family 
is I always constantly am obsessed with with going out into nature and engaging with it and being with it. Lately, I've had this deep obsession with uh, with fishing. So literally almost every single day I go out for hours by myself to pretty like isolated hidden lakes and I just fish them. And you know, when I catch a, a big bass or something, I'm very careful with it. I, I respect it. I, 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 you know, I take it out of the water. I, I marvel at its beauty and I set it back in the water and let it go back and continue to live its life. And that process is just one way, I think, that humans who struggle with isolation from nature, alienation from nature, can proactively work in their own lives to uh, disentangle themselves from that web of alienation and to go out and be in an ecosystem, preferably alone, right? Like in the silence of nature. And if you're out there for a long time, whether that's fishing, hunting, hiking, camping, anything, what you begin to do is you begin to embed yourself within the beautiful patterns of nature. And it is deeply healing on an existential level just to be out in nature and to have that greenery all over and to hear the sounds and the insects and the splashes in the water and to see like, you know, when I was fishing uh, yesterday, I go night fishing and I went night fishing by myself. Um, and so I'm out in this, in this, in this like sort of hilly wooded area, completely isolated, two miles away from a main road and nobody else is around and uh, the sun is, has already set the moon is out uh, ahead of me and I'm fishing and, and uh, this little beaver right comes like this two feet in front of me uh, off the shore and I just stop fishing for a moment I let my line go down so that this little beaver can swim over it and I just look at the beautiful pattern of water that is the wake that created by this little beaver's, um, you know, m maneuvers. And it has like some grass or some twigs in its mouth that it's clearly taking over to its dam to continue to build it or whatever. And I, I really just think that we can't overestimate and can't overstate how important it is to physically and purposefully put yourself into these ecosystems and see how they, um, how they move, how they machinate. And, and that can be deeply healing, but also deeply instructive. And it can it can it can work against some of that hardcore alienation from nature, which I think a significant chunk of the, uh, the anxiety and depression and neuroses of our species in the modern world is really derived from. Right? Is this isolation not only from one another and from the product of the things that we do, our our life activity, but also our alienation from nature. So any way that you can proactively fight against that and raise your children, uh, help your friends get out in nature, I think you're doing. Um, um, really important uh, work, really. Absolutely. I also think it's really important to note that like moments like that are also teaching moments as to why, you know, corporate ownership of, you know, such things is unacceptable, right? So like, if you take your example of, you know, solo fishing at night in the woods, and then compare that to sort of the mass industrial scale dredge um, net trawling of you know industrial fishing mm. you know you can pull on your own experience to understand why you know the the industrialization of such a thing isn't you know good for or, or even sustainable right yeah that's why that alienation is important isn't it because that enables your capacity to like mass slaughter entire ecosystems without batting an eye despite needing them because obviously you can't eat money yeah, exactly. And uh, to, to that to that exact point, 
Uh, well, really quick, I want to touch on Ryan's point about about fishing and you know counter juxtaposing that to big ag and you know just the factory farming, etc. <clears throat> I don't know how it works in the UK, but here in the US, if you want to go fishing, you have to buy a fishing license, and that fishing license comes with a bunch of regulations for how you can treat the animals, and it's all about game management or making sure that the populations stay healthy. And the main funding mechanism to keep those fish fish populations or game populations healthy is through the the funds raised through buying licenses. So, you know, at the same time where I'm going out and fishing, I'm also materially supporting the conservation of these areas, which is another sort of distinction from factory farming, which is just take, take, take and never giving back. But to Shibby's point about um, just the overall fight, I think about environmentalism and the attack on it by by, corp- by multinational corporations seeking to extract and plunder profit from the natural world. And we and once you start getting out of your individualistic, alienated mode of thinking and realize that you are one with your entire natural environment, you begin to see the destruction of the natural world as literally a physical attack on your body, on your on your uh, on the premise of your and your loved one's very existence. You know, there is no separation. Um, my heart is just as, or, you know, my heart is just as important to my existence as the trees are, right? The oxygen level in the Mm. atmosphere is just as important to me existing as is my lungs on the inside of my body. And so when you break down that inside versus outside separation, you begin to see that the premise of every, we, we bubble up out of the earth. The premise of our existence is uh, the earth's um, health and beauty and sustainability. And anybody who seeks to destroy that health and beauty and sustainability in pursuit of profit is an, is a, an enemy of all sentient beings and literally, literally an attack on your and my bodies. Um, and I think that that radical shift can only lead to uh, something like a radical environmentalism where we're, we're willing to do whatever we can to protect the earth. And when you look specifically in the U.S., a settler colonial nation state, right? The U.K. gave bloody birth to the U.S. And that settler colonial project is ongoing. The genocide of indigenous peoples is ongoing. But one of the core pillars of that genocide is to rip indigenous people off of the land that they cultivated for thousands of years, that they were one with, that they lived in sustainable harmony with for thousands and thousands of years. And then European capitalists come over here and within 200 years, we're on the brink of mass extinction and climate chaos. And that says a lot about the pathology, the the psychopathology of capitalism overall. This is actually such a great bridge to something I wanted to talk to you about, which was um, Adorno's The Culture Industry, you know, Mm -hmm. enlightenment as mass deception, you know, this idea he has that, you know, the age of enlightenment brought to humans the idea that we should have dominion over nature instead of you know work working synergistically with it mm-hmm. absolutely and that whole idea of d- dominion over nature as much as the enlightenment project sort of pitched itself as fighting against um, you know religious superstitious thinking it's a direct descendant of the sort of Christian idea of dominion that we come from the outside we're placed here and then this is our sort of playground to do as we will with it um, and so you know the enlightenment sees itself as a revolutionary rupture from superstitious religious thinking but in so many ways it just it covers up the, the the core rotten nature of the very idea of dominion and carries 
carries it on into the new world and puts, um, you know, capitalism instead of the church at the forefront of that quote unquote uh, dominion. So yeah, that, that pathology is never resolved in the enlightenment and the adherents and defenders of the enlightenment um, are really, are really adherents and defenders of a rotten, fundamentally broken um, system of thought and behavior in the world. And the, the, the most highfalutin ideas of the enlightenment are actually directly undermined by how the uh, systems that the Enlightenment produced actually operate in the real world. So, you know, the Enlightenment, people who defend the Enlightenment think of themselves as brave defenders of free speech and democracy and liberty and freedom. But every step of the way, the colonialist and capitalist world project has undermined those very things, if not for every single person, then for 95% of the human beings and flora and fauna on Earth itself. And so, a revolutionary rupture from the capitalist colonial system is synonymous with a revolutionary rupture of the enlightenment paradigm, or at least that part of the paradigm that is unfulfilled. Insofar as we believe in any aspect of the enlightenment project, a Marxist would see it as a fundamentally unfinished and aborted and betrayed project. And uh, carrying a true enlightenment means being enlightened against these ideas of multinational corporations of extraction of plundering of individualism, etc. So however you relate to the Enlightenment project, whether you're against it, or you're for it in theory, um, the actual systems that it has produced are utterly insufficient, and in fact, existential threats to, uh, to our entire existence and our future. Yeah, damn right. It is true enlightenment to recognize all of this and obviously not follow bourgeois understanding of science with that's so abstract and only beneficial to, you know, the capitalist economy and capitalist ideology. Uh, just go through a few points that fast what you said about doing what we can in order to defeat this alienation with nature and get out there in the wild and see these things and, you know, marvel at its beauty, you know, whether that's looking at nature moving through water and being, you know, aesthetically mesmerized by just the, the natural elements and that which lives within it. I, I think it's important to recognize what you said about teaching our children to obviously realize this well you know when, when it was last out with my son and you know he's just marveling at like ducks and he's marveling at caterpillars and he, he's slapping leaves as he's going past because he's just like he's, he's basically playing with nature and you know seeing how they move with gravity seeing the uh, the tension within the, the branches all of this is absolutely fascinating but this gets taught out of us when, when, when we become when we become consumers and yeah regarding fishing we can do that in the UK the UK is of course uh, heavily infrastructurized concrete jungle there really isn't a big open plains where we can go out to just like in the US I mean we're, even most of our forests are like artificial um, it's it's really insane but there is the odd farmer's field stashed away with a little pond there which people do go fishing in and yeah often you need a license but yeah regarding ecosystems and the natural environment you know we can see more of that when we 
go online for example i'm seeing <laughs> i'm seeing videos of elephants taking somebody's hat off and putting it on their head as a joke i'm seeing a fox working with a baby badger you know hunting working together i'm seeing humans work with dolphins no one of the dolphins are going to give them some food i'm seeing you know birds working with humans in africa knowing that the humans are gonna get rid of the um the bees in the beehive which the bird has shown them where it is knowing that the humans are going to give the bird some honey and seeing all of this cooperation between different species using you know a subtle level of communication and that's really this this nature that we're alienated from and again when we talk about what is nature what is natural well like animals I might have eat something. each other <laughs> like all the time I think that one of the worst ways to go would be to be eaten from the legs up by 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 another animal. Yet there are animals all the time that you know are scurrying in agony because they're being eaten alive. But I guess that is like the circle of life. There's there's no question there. It's just you know it, it's difficult to find a, a, a true balance there. And we can all become vegans, but. You know, I don't really know how like beneficial that would be, but yeah, that that's kind of furthermore reflecting on nature. Although they would be tragic ways to go, <laughs> um, we can also die from smoking. We can die from being hit by a car. We can die in our work quite easily. I mean, we'll likely die from global warming burning us, burning us up. The nuclear sword hanging over our heads. But yeah, it's true that like animals have to eat each other to survive. But you know, and even just to reflect on like what Marx or Lenin said when he can't go back to the the spinning wheel. Obviously, technology has to go forward. You have to meet foods like the world's population food demands. So I completely get that, obviously. But like when I'm working at KFC and I'm seeing like chickens come from like Brazil, Germany, France, Australia, New Zealand. And then all of these chickens are being raised on food, water, being shipped on a cargo container to come over to the UK, be unloaded, be transported to Liverpool. And then literally, if they don't get sold in 10 minutes after being cooked using energy, they go straight (laughs) in the bin. So, you know what I'm saying? There's got to be better ways. What are we doing with the food? So here's a solution for you, because I drink uh, what calls itself a new traditionally complete food that's made with you know pea protein flaxseed coconuts brown rice it i drink five of them like a day it gives me a hundred percent of a recommended day amount of calories vitamins minerals tie and protein you get slow release carbs you get all your essential fats you get a source of fiber you get all your phytonutrients you get everything the body needs 100 percent. you can get it in powder form or you can get it in a liquid form the state should roll this out everywhere to every single household everywhere um again that the people themselves can build this in their local communities it gives them jobs we can obviously build the the, the plants to build all the chemicals and the vitamins and minerals again we, we we develop professors we develop you know scientists we develop people in all local communities so all of this is one way in which we can detach ourselves from capitalist uh, food consumption and also advance into a next stage of actually getting high nutritional foods to the people so yeah i went off on one there but you know as well as complaining about you know the, the modern industrialized food you know consumption habits we can always propose solutions and this is one it's a lot better than 50 percent of all the foods mm. waste being raised transported and then going in the bin like i've experienced in kfc 
So yeah, there is a lot there, but have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's, I mean, just the utter deep, massive inefficiency of the capitalist system, the very system that loves to pretend that it is the cutting edge of efficiency itself. And just that whole process of raising, spending money and energy to, to create the chicken, shipping it halfway across the world, and as you said, just throwing it into the trash can is uh, just absolutely absurd and really highlights the absurdity of the entire system. But I, I think what you're getting at earlier and and, and deeply is, some, is something I struggle with as well or think about a lot is, you know, we talk about the inseparability of everything and dialectics well there's a dialectic between death and life life literally cannot exist without death there has to be a clearing away of the old in order for there to be a birth and growth of the new and that happens on every single level both cosmically um, environmentally personally right like I I grow up I raise my children I die off um, so that I can leave room for their children and there is something sort of beautiful in that cycle and one of the things that got me into um fishing particularly, but even a little bit into hunting, which we can maybe talk about, uh, was the idea of, of sort of refusing to extract myself from that life and death process. As as ugly as it can be, that's only one side of it, right? The the bear chewing on the, the deer while it screams, right, is one aspect of nature. But on the other side is, as you said, um, two species coming together to help one another. Or you've even seen pictures of um, like, you know, some sort of predator with a baby version of their prey and it actually takes it under its wing and protects it. So these are two sides of, of the same coin. You can't have one without the other and it's sort of idealist um, to assume that you can and as much as we may want because of our moral compunction or whatever to extract death from the life and death cycle, um, it's really unhealthy because what you actually get in lieu of actually being able to separate life and death is you just get a pushing away of it out of view. So the death and the carnage and the torture and the bloodshed still happen but it's just conveniently pushed way out of view and then you can walk around feeling a little bit superior because you don't see how you're directly engaging with that bloodshed that is you know the the fundamental basis of all nature and when you look at that and i think when you look at uh, big agriculture uh, factory farming and the d- absolute depravities and torturous cruelty of those systems you can go one of two ways i think the vegan route is one um, reaction to the, the horror show of factory farming and it's an admirable um, wonderful re- reaction i think and it's something that you know takes a lot of discipline and i respect anybody who does it i think on the other end though and sometimes it doesn't get talked about enough one of the other reactions you can have in the face of that depravity is to say I want to go out and uh, harvest my food from the natural world. I want to go out and fish and hunt for my food as much as I can to displace the otherwise factory farmed meat that I would be taking in. Um, and so I think hunters and vegans, although they're they're sort of presented to us as, as complete and utter opposites with nothing in common, and they often slander one another, you know, across the, the firing line, in reality are often motivated by very similar impulses in the face of, of the depravities of this system. And, you know, you can have your moral compunctions against um, of hunting, but I think even if, if veganism were to be completely widely accepted, you know, all the land that would be need to be cleared. I mean, it's cleared already for meat, right? But like, I'm just trying to get to this point that you can't actually separate um, death from the process. So even in a, in a vegan world, 
where you have agriculture as the main dominant way people feed themselves, you're still clearing land, you're still killing rodents and insects, you're still, you know, maybe using organic pesticides or whatever fertilizers for the, the crops to grow. And so you can't, as much as you wriggle and writhe, you can't extract yourself from this life and death process. So for me, um, fishing and, and, and hunting are ways in which I'm trying to deal with that contradiction. Um, and, and maybe I'm not doing it right. Maybe there are arguments against hunting that would be put me to shame or whatever, but it at least is that shared impulse I have with vegans of like, how can I not partake at least less and less in this horrific system? And how can I be as self-sufficient as possible? You know, growing gardens, going out once in a while to fish, to feed your family, um, you know, going out and be able to hunt. So that animal, instead of being pumped full of artificial hormones and antibiotics, living a torturous life, shoulder to shoulder with other of its species and then being slaughtered unceremoniously at the end actually lives a full life out in nature um, you know, breeds, grows old, and then you go out and you harvest that animal, bring it back, feed your family with it. Well, I know that that neither veganism nor hunting could really be widespread, right? Like not every person on earth could do both those things. It wouldn't be sustainable. And that's where scientific development and technological development need to come in, right? We can't go back to some past. Um, but at the same time, I don't know. I, those I'm just throwing those sort of out on, on the table and would love to hear both of your responses to that sort of uh, contradiction or conflict between veganism and hunting. No, no, I, I love both of those things. And I think it's definitely important that, you know, as many people as possible do those two things, but also not lose sight of, you know, the, the sort of structural problems that prevail, right? Like even if we manage to get, I don't know, 30, 40, 50% of the planet to become uh, vegans, that's still not going to, you know, change the fact that, you know, Dow Chemicals still pollutes rivers and, and uh, oceans and everything, right? And I think mm -hmm. that there is a sort of inherent problem in the individualization of correcting those those issues, right? The idea that if everyone's vegan, then we can reverse climate change, except there are, you know, companies, corporations, structures that will still carry on doing things the way they are, even if they have to morph and change slightly to accommodate an ever, you know, uh, increasing vegan population. I mean, the largest polluter on the planet is, you know, the US military. Um, so there's no, there's no level of, of veganism that would uh, uh, prevent them going doing doing what they do you know absolutely yeah uh, for, uh, yeah so when you were talking about veganism the first thing that popped into my mind was, was discipline and you did mention that it's absolutely you know remarkable and commendable vegans and it is so, so well said when you were talking about how vegans and these natural hunters do have so much you know natural understanding in mind despite there being methods being different there's so much nuance in that um so uh, yeah again i do think in my ideal communist world if i was the leader i would have the industrialized nations that you know preserve how they are and then instead of building outwards we just build up mm, you know it's that simple just build just build towers and then everywhere that is natural if humans did want to inhabit those lands that it, you know is is natural and it does have nat natural um you know ecosystems i do think that they should only be allowed in those places to live with 
Well, spears, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because um, they're, they're forced to survive by themselves if they get eaten by a wild animal, and that's that's just you know you know life. But yeah, I think that that's a way to have you know a natural subsistence hunter lifestyle whilst also being ethically moral or more natural or something. Yeah, I mean that that's a, that's something I thought about anyway. But when you were talking about you know, life and death, this being a dialectic and, you know, you need one for the other. That's so true. And we can see this every time we breathe because inhaling oxygen is, you know, why we breathe. But inhaling oxygen is actually what ages our cells. We obviously breathe out carbon dioxide. So we're in this permanent rapport with, you know, all different life forms to produce oxygen. But... You know, again, this is why antioxidants are important for our health because they combat the oxygen that we breathe in so that our cells age at a slower rate. And these antioxidants can be found in, you know, blueberries and other things. So, yeah, that just shows this dialectic between life and death. And we can just see every time we take a breath. <laughs> so we're moving on to the more trippy aspects of reality now. So let's discuss psychedelics because you mentioned it on one of your Patreon episodes that you were inspired to do your Nina Simone episode. Excellent, by the way, after a trip with mushrooms. So I really wonder what was it about those mushrooms that that really resonated with you? That was Nina Simone and her love of of humanity, her passion and her drive for a, a oneness something that the mushroom felt is it something is it did it give off a language to you that made you you know realize this did it say something to you is that mushroom really dead if that's the case did did it speak to you in, in a way that you know has, has now become part of your consciousness is that mushroom dead now or is it a part of you you know just just some thoughts some questions well, yeah, they, they do live on in the sense that they, they impact our consciousness in ways that are truly uh, profound and, and almost inexplicable. And I think the reason that this conversation particularly can get very difficult and highly speculative is because at the core of it, we're talking about human consciousness and how these substances affect human consciousness. And human consciousness itself is a profound and utter mystery. Um, you know, philosophers have talked about it for hundreds of years. Scientists are, are trying to understand the, the neuroscientific and chemical basis of it. But the more we poke and prod, the more it seems to elude us. And so when we're talking about psychedelics, we're not we're talking about something that um, it, it affects our brains on like you can you can talk about mushrooms or acid or DMT on the neuroscientific level on this materialist um, you know how does this actually affect the neurochemistry of the brain level but on the other level which is even perhaps the more profound level is its impact on consciousness and how that impact can be lasting. Now, you can engage with psychedelics in a way that is um, just sort of flippant, right? I talked about on another episode my flippant engagement when I was younger and, and I was like 16 and did way too much mushrooms and it was the, the, the motivation behind it was just to get fucked up with my friends, right? And sometimes some, some spiritual-esque revelations can come through that, but a lot of times it, it can just be a sort of, I'm just putting these chemicals in my head to make things wavy for a while and you know that's that's fun and cool but on a deeper level and as i get older i understand that there's this 
other way to engage with psychedelics, which is to take them very seriously, to think of them medicinally, to think of them therapeutically, to set up a context uh, in your mind and literally in the little physical space that you plan on taking these psychedelics, setting them up intentionally with the idea and with the, with the idea of paying respect to what you're about to do and with the idea that it's not to get fucked up, but rather to introspect to 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 investigate firsthandedly the mystery of your own consciousness and when you are engaged with those substances whether they be dmt um, lsd mushrooms and you engage with them in that respectful sort of intentional way um, they can have profound effects creatively um, therapeutically psychologically and science is actually now so slowly catching up to this idea that there are true benefits medicinal benefits to these things whether it's you know using MDMA to, to treat post-traumatic stress syndrome or ayahuasca to to treat heroin and alcohol addiction um, or a whole or uh, mushrooms for example example are being used in end of life terminal cancer patients to um, to ease anxiety and to have a revelatory experience whereby most of the subjects who undergo these experiments say that this mushroom trip at the end of their life facing their own mortality in no uncertain terms was actually completely beneficial to them radically rewired their relationship to their own mortality made them not only be okay with death but to openly embrace and accept their own death and um, again because this is playing on consciousness there's still so many questions to be answered but in my own experience in my own life and I've had uh, you know I would say more experience with psychedelics than 99% of people on earth right because um, if you actually look at the details the amount of people that do mushrooms and acid and DMT can be is actually pretty small globally. And if you're in circles of people that are like psychonauts and they love this stuff, you can sort of lose sight of just how rare these things are for people to actually use in any systemic way. So it is very rare. So I have a lot of personal experience with it. And some of my most profound spiritual revelations are, are wrapped up in my psychedelic trips. My last one on mushrooms a couple months ago um, was incredibly profound to the point where there was moments in the trip where I was openly weeping on the ground um, out of pure, unbounded love and compassion for all other human beings, thinking about the suffering of, of other people, uh, strangers, in a way that was so profound to me that it literally brought me to my knees uh, and I wept. It's not like a tear dribbled down my cheek, but like a hard physical weeping um, for the suffering of other human beings, human beings that I don't even know. And, uh, you know, you can you can wave your hand and say, well, it's just chemicals in your brain, whatever. But no, no, no. It's something much, much deeper than that. And the sort of person who can wave their hand and say it's just chemicals in the brain, nothing to see here, are almost always the sort of people who themselves have never engaged with these substances. So what what this means, I don't know. It has something to do with the co-evolution of our species and the flora and fauna around us. It's amazing that these things that grow out of the earth, be they DMT, mushrooms, LSD, or anything else, can have these profound effects on us and lasting effects because after the the, the, the drug itself and the, the trip itself goes away, I was still left with this profound um, sort of moral urgency to, to help others more, right? To do more. That was the thing that I, I kept coming up with in my head during that trip. I need to help people more. How can I, how can I help them? That month... 
I ended up, you know, doing it in the in the sense that I uh, gave hundreds and hundreds of dollars away to uh, on the ground organizations, feeding people, serving the people, etc. And then the next month um, after the 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 uprising hit. We gave hundreds and hundreds of dollars away to bail funds to make sure people can get out of jail. And, you know, that's just one way of helping people. But even that seems insufficient still. Months after my trip, I'm still feeling like I'm not, I, I need to do even more than that. I need to to help people even more and dedicate my life to, to helping other human beings suffer less. And that dovetails beautifully with the Marxist political project of building a better world. That dovetails beautifully with the Buddhist concept of the illusion of separate and that we're all in this together and you know that radical compassion is the way toward liberation de-emphasizing your individual egoic self and replacing it with the other right absorb really what it is is absorbing the other into the self that the self is no longer this myopic trembling little ego but it is everything and everyone and to see somebody else suffer unnecessarily is to feel that suffering almost as if it's your own uh, and that's profound and that has a capacity perhaps to definitely change individual psychologies but if you can imagine maybe a future socialist society where psychedelics are brought into the culture in such a way that they can become rites of passages, um, things that we that we have a deep cultural societal respect for and engage with systemically, um, you could really have profound effects on, on, a, on a culture more broadly. Um, so I don't know the answer to a lot of these mysteries. I don't know where these things will go in the future, but science is catching up, medicine is catching up, and more and more people are becoming interested in the implications for human consciousness and i think that can only be a good thing yeah it's definitely important to underline that these time things uh-huh. should just be taken willy-nilly um, just you know with no care no understanding of the deep implications that can come from them obviously they can cause harm but we're talking about as you say taking it in a ritualistic sense and society should do that rather than criminalizing it as they do now i can remember you know, back in the early days when I first started smoking weed, I'd just be like, you know, with smoking, would just be like, oh my God, this just opens your mind up. Like, you can see so much more. You can see how like, you can see that if people just smoke weed, everybody would be happy and they'd all get along. And, you know, we, we, I really was convinced that obviously capitalism would keep this from us because it would you know make us more awoken I guess to the absolutely insane barbaric feudalistic time in which we live in under capitalist overlords (laughs) but yeah regarding all the work that you do Brett and you know how inspired you were to do so much more yeah just love and solidarity especially you know being, I don't know, it's sad that you've got to be brave to do this, but be brave enough to actually say, I was on my goddamn knees crying, wish I could do more, just thinking about all the goddamn suffering in the world. I mean, anybody who knows me knows it's extremely easy to get me, to set me off crying. I swear to God, I mustn't have a single mate who's just not seeing me cry, like, no joke, like, as a, as a fucking adult and that, because... The world's fucking horrible. There's so many things to be fucking upset about, and you know this this drive to do more is like there's there's no amount of ego I could have that could you know accept and tolerate this. So people with an ego are the ones you know all the all the lads who can't actually express the feelings and you know are, are gonna actually 
punch your head in if you ever do something to upset the ego so they're definitely not going to come out and talk about things that are upsetting because then their egos being offended you know a lot of people's livelihoods depend on having a, a, a massive ego so i mean the point i'm making is it, it, it's this being true to yourself to want to do more to help to help others that truly makes the world a better place so yeah i just want to thank you for obviously your open honesty whenever it comes to you know emotions and feelings because we, we can't ignore them we shouldn't ignore them this is why so many people fucking kill themselves regularly do you know what i'm saying it's just toxic masculinity but yeah the point i'm making here is the fact that all of these plants these compounds that affect us in you know really profound ways you know psychedelically these have historically been able to heal the fractured souls which capitalism has absolutely mined and exploited from us for their own gain and as Brett said has actually turned somebody who's going to lose their life into somebody who's made peace with that so these can heal psychologically in ways that no medicine can and it is a goddamn shame that science is so that the materials conception of science not the marxist sense of science but the capitalist science says you know we when it comes to consciousness at least that we can't measure these things uh, because they can't be held like you can't hold a thought so capitalist science is saying if you can't measure it then it's not there but obviously it is there because obviously we've got consciousness and you can't measure that you can't measure dreams but yeah we know that they're there i just want to talk a second about how like this actually helps solidify the idea of just how strong capitalist realism is right so like if you think back to the 60s you get the psychedelic revolution you get the tune in drop out you get the you know take them to understand the system and the whole counterculture and if you fast forward to today i read an article about uh how people in silicon valley like tech workers are microdosing psychedelics so that they can be more productive and so that they can you know increase the the profit margins of um of their bosses right and that sort of really brings home the idea to me not only capitalist realism but the idea lenin talked about you know anything that is remotely revolutionary will be stripped of revolutionary potential and incorporated back into the capitalist system so that it, it can profit off of it mm, exactly right and and it's it's a. Uh... It should be sacrilegious. It should it should profoundly bother us that these you know meditation is a similar thing, right? Definitely. It gets it gets commodified. Definitely. It gets stripped of its actual you know deep and profound implications, and it becomes just another tool for productivity. So in both cases, you're taking something beautiful with thousands and thousands of years of indigenous um, significance and and ways of life, and you're stripping it. You're stripping it of everything meaningful about it, and you're repackaging it as something to make you more productive in the workplace it's a slap in the face to anybody on earth with a heart and a brain and uh and and those things need to be combated by thoughtful people um on the other side of things it says no 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 meditation and psychedelics and, and these things are not here for tech bros in silicon valley to produce more profit they're here for radical engagement on a spiritual and existential level for the betterment of not only the individual but for the entire um, population for all sentient beings ultimately 
And I think that's really an, an important part of it. And uh, the one thing I wanted to say, too, uh, is, is about ego. Capitalism is the centering of the ego. Imperialism is the centering of the ego. It's the domination. It's the putting down. It's the, the punching somebody's head in, as Shibby said earlier. It's this idea that you need to dominate everybody else because what the ego really is, is a manifestation, an overcompensation of deep trembling insecurity. The underbelly of ego is always insecurity. The, the people that want to put their ego forward, that want to convince you that they're the coolest, strongest, sexiest person alive that need to go out of their way to try to tell you that are the sort of people that are inside trembling little babies that don't know themselves and are insecure about themselves. And so they need to project and they need to overcompensate. And when you blow that up to a societal or civilizational scale, you get something like capitalism, imperialism, you get something like European colonialism. And so when we talk about the ego, sometimes I'll have crude Marxists reach out and say, this is not important. You, you know, you're talking about individual psychology and get all that out of my face. We need to talk about the materialist conditions and the means of production and how to change them. But the, this is a betrayal of dialectics. This is a refusal to see the interconnectivity of all of these things. And, you know, if we're going to have an outward revolution, there needs to be changes to our paradigm, changes to the way we relate to one another at the same time. A revolution isn't just an outward objective thing. It's also a dialectically in, inward, implicit thing. And uh, I think that's a really important thing to remember. And specifically the idea that wherever there is ego, it's always undergirded and produced by a deep-seated insecurity that the ego is trying to compensate for. Thank you. God damn, that was so well said, Brett. As always, I proper love how you articulate the ego. It's, it's again, spot on. It's something people need to realise. People don't even know what a goddamn ego is for the most part, but you've just explained it perfectly. And it's obviously one of the biggest goddamn problems in society. It is, you know, as you explained, it's, it's capitalism. Uh, on this inward struggle, which you talked about, which you said that there's an, an outward struggle and an inward struggle uh, with with a revolution, but yet there's also the outward struggle and the inward struggle of capitalism, and that is the individual, and then that is the, the, the broader sense of everybody competing as individuals in, in markets and whatnot. But yeah, well, well said. And yeah, Ryan, also well said, you're talking about anything that is revolutionary is stripped of its revolutionary potential. And yeah, you could say that absolutely when it comes to psychedelics and these drugs which are being talked about. That's actually well, like so true. Uh, I'll also just give an example of how the state actually done that. Well, an actual scumbag who was a former Nixon policy advisor, that's an actual presidential policy advisor, said, you want to know what all this is really about? Yes, with the bluntness of a man who, after public disgrace and the stretch of federal prison, had little left to protect. He said the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people said you you know what i'm saying we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin you know obviously after they flooded heroin in these communities and then criminalizing both heavily marijuana and being against you know the drug war then we could disrupt these communities we could arrest their leaders raid their homes break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news did we know we were lying about the drugs of course we did 
that's a policy advice. He's come out and said this. How fucking disgusting is that? That's why people are getting arrested. That's why drugs are illegal. It's just some something from the Nixon campaign in 1968. Yeah, 100%. That was, that was the beginning of, of the drug war here in the U.S., the Nixon administration, ramped up by the Reagan administration and really ramped up, which doesn't get talked about a lot, by the Clinton administration. And what the product of that was, it's not only clear, you know, racist police brutality in poor communities of color and all of the other shit that goes along with it, the infiltration of left-wing groups, COINTELPRO, etc. But it's also the, the basis of the incarceration system here in the U.S. The United States has about 4 to 5% of the world's population, but 25% of its prisoners. That is a profound, um, that is a profound statistic, a profound reality. The very nation who tells the rest of the world that it is the beacon of liberty and freedom has more people in cages per capita and in overall terms than any other society on, hum- on, on planet Earth. And if that's not a, a profound hypocrisy at the heart of, of capitalism, I don't know what is, but you're exactly right. It started out as a, an attack on the left and on, on communities of color. And it goes way back even before that to, to immigrants and, and the first marijuana laws here in the U.S. It's always been racially coded and still to this day is incredibly deeply uh, racially coded. And it, and it evolves, but it never stops. So, you know, you have the, the, the early heroin and the psychic but then it shifted into crack cocaine and, 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 and regular cocaine. Um, and then it just it, it just now just used as a pretext to pull people over, plant drugs on them. And then, you know, once you do that, you can brutalize them. You can do anything you want to them. You can lock them in a cage for uh, having a plant that grows out of the fucking earth. Uh, this system is rotten. And what the counterculture didn't get right was the idea that you could have a counterculture without challenging the underlying system that produces this rotten culture. And so what happened after the 60s is that all these hippies, they just resorted back into their individual lives. They recoiled back into their individual lives and became the next generation of oppressors. They're the boomers today. They're the 60 and 70 year olds in Congress today. Um, And so what the counterculture of the 60s for whatever its successes and failures may have been, it's also a, a deep lesson on the idea that that if you want to take these ideas about psychedelics and all this stuff and then the possible emancipatory power of them seriously it needs to go hand in hand with a political confrontation with the underlying system of capitalism there needs to be a rupture from the underlying system before we can treat any of the the symptoms of the underlying disease yeah this liberal capitalism being the disease and obviously socialism being the cure the cure to poor people being locked up in cages as you said you know uh, i just like live there's so many drugs in my city it's a port city so you know there's a river there um it's historically been you know big on on crime because there's always like uh you know so much fucking poverty and people trying to make ends meet out here you know and if you look outside of central London or even in central London just not in the rich parts there's crime everywhere there's, there's you know there's council estates housing estates and then you've got like uh, you know what What the fuck do you call them basically the projects in, in London and you've got people hustling out there with no other option because I mean that they're raised in these communities that have been flooded by drugs from 
bourgeoisie, the capitalists, not from goddamn poor people. How the fuck are they bringing in drugs from, you know, elsewhere, from all over the world? Obviously, they're not. So, obviously, there's the lumpen capitalists, there's a lumpen, lumpen petty bourgeoisie as well. But if you just want to look at an actual example and how the bourgeoisie are still flooding these communities to this goddamn day with drugs, I'll give you one. In 2009, US customs officials seized a container ship financed by JP Morgan, one of the world's largest banks this I week, after yep. authorities found nearly 18 tons of cocaine with an estimated street value of $1.3 billion in the vessel. Oh my days, fam. The sheer quantity of cocaine, roughly 39,500 pounds. This is still going on today. Is a proletarian owning and commanding a, a ship like this? No. But are our people, our politicians, going to be arrested and thrown into jail, having to have a fucking blade shoved up the bum in case anybody jumps in the cell and tries to stab them to death, trying to survive in jail? Yes, they will. They've set up poor communities to go to jail. And then they make money on the private prisons on the other end. So, God, you know, they bring damn. in the drugs or whatever. They make money off that. They pharmaceuticalize and patent other drugs and make money off that. Um, and then they make money off the private prisons when you pump millions of fucking people into those cages. And then you that's another source of profit. So on every level of this problem, you see the profiteers being the parasitic cause and effect of this rotten system. And it needs to be toppled. There's no other way out. There's no reforming this violent, disgusting, genocidal death death machine we know as, as global capitalism and and the more people that realize it the better and the quicker we realize it the better because uh, with, the, with the climate chaos hanging over our heads like a noose uh, time is running out we need to get these ideas out to more and more people and more and more people need to be willing to uh, dedicate their lives to building a better world before before the, the clock runs out on us I was going to say, I think that's actually a good uh, a good introduction to ask you whether you are, you know, ultimately optimistic on the uh, the future of humanity. Because, like you said, there's uh, plenty of things to be depressed about. You can, you know, flip on the news, and uh, there's no shortage of things from nuclear war to, to the ongoing climate emergency to uh, to be depressed about. Yeah. Well, I would answer that, uh, uh, you know, sort of going full circle uh, dialectically. Wherever there is oppression, wherever there's domination, wherever there's violent depravity, colonialism, capitalism, plundering, etc., you also inherently give rise to those who fight it. The more the earth is destroyed, the more environmentalists you create. Marx talked about capitalism producing its own grave diggers. And as, as the capitalist system spirals the death drain more and more, more and more people have no choice but to see the system for what it is and wake up. Here in the U.S., we're having this unprecedented multiracial uprising right now in every major city and even little towns across this across this country of people of all colors standing up, um, d defending black lives, but also making these systemic critiques of the overall system, knowing full well that this system has robbed most of us my age and younger of our future. We don't have a future. And when capitalism is let unfettered, it, it robs everybody of their future and people aren't stupid. People know it. And so am I optimistic? 
I'm cautiously optimistic because I understand the dialectical process. The more depraved the system gets, the more the more people wake up to the depravity of the system and are willing to fight it. And we're seeing that process play out globally. And we saw in the last 10 years this rise of right-wing neo-fascist, quote-unquote, populism the world over uh, in, in your country, in our country, in the Philippines, in Brazil, in, in, in uh, Hungary, all over the world. It's, and I, and I'm, what I'm hoping is that this is the last sort of major global gasp of, of, of this system and, and this next generation coming up um, are fed up and they and they know that there's no future for them. They're, they're going to work. If we keep the system in place, we're just going to watch the world die around us while we get paid $10 a goddamn hour and, and work until we're 75 and die on the job and the assembly line. People don't want that future. Uh, the capitalism's created the context in which people are saying enough is enough and more and more people are saying it every single day. So that's what gives me optimism. Um, it's a revolutionary optimism. It's a, it's a belief in the masses, a belief in the people that you can only push people so far before people say no more. And I think we're seeing more and more people um, you know, putting up the middle finger to the system and saying no more. And I think that's only going to increase in the face of continued uh, climate catastrophe, in the face of continued ne- unnecessary imperial slaughter, in the, in the face of just brutal grinding inequality in your country in my country and countries all over the world. And so that's that dialectical process of, of, of being oppressed and then fighting up against your oppressor. And the more intense they try to restrain it and stamp it down, the more vigorous the, 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 the other side becomes. And so, and so, yeah, that dialectical process does give me some optimism. And I think it should give all of us optimism, but also responsibility, because the important thing here is that it's not a passive process. You know, history doesn't happen to us. It happens through us. Um, we are the mechanisms by which uh, history is made. And so it's not enough to say, well, the dialectical process will play out. I'll just go play Call of Duty and recoil into my individual life because then it mm. won't. <laughs> you know, the oppressors are organized. They're funded. They're militant. They're ready to fight and die for their broken system. And we have to meet them with that level of organization, discipline, funding and, and militancy in order to oppose them in enough time to save our futures. Um, so, you know, as scary as things are going to get in the next couple of decades, um, it's, it's a necessary process that needs to play out. And ultimately, I believe there's more people in this world that, that want to see a better, different way of life than there are people who are deeply invested in this rotten system. Um, and so that, that does give me some hope. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of the answer that, you know, Antonio Gramsci gave when asked the same thing, right? I'm a, I'm a pessimist of the intellect, but an optimist of will. Beautiful. Exactly right. So, Angela Davis, optimism is a political act. You have to act as if it was possible to radically transform the world, and you have to do it all of the time. So true. It's a struggle. God damn it. It's heartbreaking. The more you learn about the world, the tougher it is on your soul. But you have have to call your boss bourgeoisie, Mr. Bourgeoisie. You've got to tell your workers he's a bourgeoisie. We're workers. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you have to you've got to do a bit of theory at least just to have a basic grasp on on our position in the world and then again just even reading some of the history or listening to podcasts that hear about revolutionary struggles and history and successes that gives you optimism anyway but even if you're not optimistic we've still got to do the struggle because Brett said we're the mechanisms of history being played if we don't do something 
it never gets done. I mean, you can't sit on Call of Duty. Nothing's going to change. You've got to go out. You've got to speak like this. People out there, do a podcast. Do a podcast. Just speak your own thoughts. So... My earlier episodes, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I just knew that it's important to to speak and, and be vocalised and then, you know, get guests on. We'll come on your podcast. You know, I'm sure other people will come on your podcast. We can go through these things together. So, I mean, it might not be being out there organising because you might not have anybody to organise with. You might not be any comrades close by. So this is one tool in which you can be a part of history being played. You can have people listening healing your struggle empathising and doing that political act to at least have some optimism to inspire it in others it's a struggle we're there for you we're your comrades we love you use your voice god damn it every single voice is important um, you're going to refine your speech you're going to refine your ideas and that will make you an asset to the struggle let's move on now let's have a discussion that I'm so excited to talk about now so you know as as James Colony said the Irish people will only be free when they own everything from the plough to the stars solidarity to the Irish god damn but I mean people in general are only going to be free when they own everything from the plough to the stars let's talk about the stars we've talked about the light from the big bang hitting earth forming life so, I mean, yes, we did emerge from the earth, you know, animals, plant life. Let's look at beyond that now, because whether we like it or not, NASA has a mission, space 2024, to a mission to the moon and Mars within the next 10 years of our lifetime. They're going to be establishing a permanent base on the moon. They're going to go to Mars. They're going to have man on Mars. I personally can't wait to see HD footage of, of man and woman on Mars. But to, to you, better, have you heard about this? And what does this to you say for the future of capitalism? Is this step to establish a permanent base on the moon and go out to Mars, is that something positive for mankind? Or is it simply like, as Franz Fanon would say, is it a bourgeois prestige work? Or is it even just simply U.S. space imperialism? I think it is. And this is where we get down to, you know, systemic things that undergird things that could be good or bad, right? So there's a, a version of this that could be good, and it's sort of the Star Trekian version of transcending the need for the amassing of wealth for its own sake and then going out into the cosmos with a with a genuine and sole goal of exploration for its own sake, of learning, of connecting, of, of seeing if there's other life forms out there, of learning more about our own place in the cosmos, right? That's what all this is about. A lot has changed in the past 300 years. People are no longer obsessed with the accumulation of things. We have eliminated hunger, want, the need for possessions. We've grown out of our infancy. You've got it all wrong. It has never been about possessions. It's about power. Power to do what? To control your life, your destiny. That kind of control is an illusion. Then what will happen to us? There's no trace of my money. My office is gone. What will I do? How will I live? This is the 24th century. Material needs no longer exist. 
then what's the challenge? The challenge, Mr. Offenhaus, is to improve yourself, to enrich yourself. Enjoy it. So you can imagine a socialist or communist um, future world where space exploration and even bases on Mars are an, an intrinsic part of just human self-actualization, of figuring out where we fit in the cosmos for its own sake. But under capitalist imperialist paradigm, under the paradigm we see now, what it really is is an extension of colonialist logic, of, of a new frontier to dominate, of, of new commodities out in, in space to, uh, to plunder and exploit for profit. Um, you know, you, you can see this in the show, the, the sci-fi show, The Expanse, um, where it really gives a, a capitalist future where the space exploration is for ultimate um, class society ends. The hierarchy of class society, of racism, of imperialism, of different types of people, you know, the belters, those who live out on the asteroid belt versus the people on Earth versus the people on Mars, they begin to divide and separate each other almost like along, you know, what would be today racial lines or ethnic lines, but the capitalist logic always finds ways to divide and separate and, and conquer. Um, and so it, it depends under which, under system that this 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 happens. And under the current system with the Elon Musks of the world and, and the overall capitalist uh, extractive project still ongoing, uh, this is either an expansion of the colonialist sort of mindset and or um, a sort of fever dream that we can we can we can use up everything on Earth. We can destroy the forests and the Amazon um, and, 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 you know, shit in our own nest. And then when that's completely sort of despoiled, we can fly off and terraform Mars and create a new Earth and start the process all over again. Uh, this is the psychopathic logic at the center of uh, the, the of of capitalist, the, the capitalist and colonialist imperialist system. So under that context, this can only be a bad thing. This can only be another iteration, a new frontier uh, for domination and plundering. But under a different context, if, if, if we can manage to, to make this revolutionary rupture uh, from this system and move towards a better world, it can be something that's truly beautiful. It can be the expansion of the human future. It could be uh, humanity existing for millions of more generations, each one building off the knowledge of the, of the last and and pushing our species further into the cosmos with the underlying um, urge not to profit and, and, and plunder and exploit and dominate, but to learn, to grow, to make connections with other life forms in the, in the galaxy. And that can be a beautiful thing. So again, you know, this is why systemic understanding is essential. The way libertarians and, and liberals and defenders of the system talk about it, it can become very much a sort of apocalyptic, dystopian future idea. Um, but under the right conditions, it, it could be a beautiful expansion of, of the human project. So, yeah, it, it depends. Absolutely. I think I think that's actually what most people miss about technology or even institutions generally, right? That there's no such thing as uh, an institution devoid of uh, class interest, right? So, so long as you have a bourgeois, technology will be used to meet their ends, right? I mean, when television was first created, there were no adverts on it. And then over time, the muddied interests roll in and they cut it up and before and in the middle and after of shows, you have to have adverts now. And this is the same thing that's happened with technology. I mean, under, under a class society, technology will be used to benefit the class interests. I mean, you can see that in the way that technology is used now. I mean, how is it used? It's used to surveil us. It's used to track us. It's used to sell us things. I mean, these are, but 
Yeah, I mean, definitely under a, a non-class society, you know, technology will be freed up to be used in other ways for the benefit of people instead of for the benefit of the bourgeois, for sure. I would love it to, I mean, me personally, I believe all of humanity should come together again in my ideal communist world. I would fully say, okay, the Lake District, every single human being on the planet, don't care where you're from, what you're doing, anything like that. If you want to build a spaceship, go to the Lake District. I don't care how long it takes us, but everybody's going to get the necessary education to being able to facilitate this construction of a spaceship so that we can go to Mars and, and space and whatsoever. To me, that's important. I think it's absolutely essential to go to space because I do believe if we're not creating the conditions for our species to survive throughout the course of the universe's like life, I just, I just think that that's like pointless do you know what i'm saying I, I think that we exist to reproduce and carry on the universe's ability to be conscious i believe that you know without us the universe doesn't know that exists i, I also kind of feel like like we're definitely basically <laughs> sperm to be fertilized on an egg that it happens to be another planet or a moon we can 100% go there and then make them fertile or you could see it simply as pollen blowing off one leaf onto another i mean this is obvious in nature we're a part of nature as we keep saying this is literally what it's meant to be it's like kind of Sh schrodinger's cat yeah yeah it's like <laughs> the universe needs a conscious observer or the universe just isn't there and and, and again that <laughs> I mean, there's no way to measure it, but again, that could just be like a materialist conception, you know, using modern science. Yeah, I mean, we should have spaceships, we should be going to Mars, we should try and observe our, our life and, and life on, on, on Earth, because uh, as we heard from the intro, life is a miracle. Um, we don't know if it exists elsewhere. I think we should definitely go out there and travel and explore it. I don't care how long it takes us. There's no evolution, there's no natural selection, we're all in houses, we're not being killed off by nature. I mean, I think evolution is stunted for, for humanity. I do think that we should continue to bound through space and time and as technology evolves with earlier humans who are traveling through space and time. Maybe, like, Mars would be the first step. I do believe that, like, I mean, even if we're not technically homo sapiens, um, I, uh, this is kind of a touchy subject because you know you do hear like them say well you know that that just ferments racism because you're saying that humans are different i don't i, I don't think that matters whatsoever <laughs> like again i mean we're obviously in favor of, of plants of, of animals of humanity i'm going to be in favor of not even a next step but just a variant of the the, the, the sapient overall and what well, I mean, this sounds uh, again absolutely far-fetched and, and and absolutely mad. But if you're not thinking about these things in serious terms, we're just gonna be hit. I mean, imagine the day that we we defeat the capitalists, we've got international global solidarity, and then we get hit by an asteroid and all become extinct anyway. What was the point? Yeah, goddamn yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we absolutely have to exist on other bodies throughout space and otherwise we are just going to be hit by an asteroid a volcano a nuclear annihilation a goddamn super corona so many things that can wipe us out on this earth if we don't exist outside of earth then we're, we're fucking failing basically we, we can't truly protect ourselves
and the people if we're just living on one rock in space but I mean what comes from this because there's other people out there who don't even agree with this but what comes from it we'll look at what came from the Apollo program we've got so many technologies nowadays that have improved life everywhere you know the technology that comes from it is absolutely insane I can't think of none of them off the top of my head but even missile technology that's been developed we can use those same missiles to, to literally shoot food at hungry people all around the world if people need certain equipment no matter where they are we just load the payload on top of a missile and shoot it at them it's that simple we can use these technologies that as ryan said they only produce when it means to save the capitalists but there's gonna be no communist manifesto on the moon nasa are not taking a communist manifesto to mars it's not gonna be on e on elon musk's ship it's definitely not gonna be on jeff bezos spaceship there's gonna be no communists outside of mars and all that's gonna happen is they're just gonna eventually have a colony outside of the earth and then invade us all for our own resources or what because that's what happened when humans left africa if we don't have this in like global consciousness in which we are all on the same page if we all resonate with each other if i mean you start off by reading goddamn marx because then you know what marx said and then we don't have to debate with each other stupid shit because we're all on the same page you get me so it, it has to be done we have to go to space we also have to take power from the capitalists or the capitalists are just going to fuck us over both on earth and in space we should build a goddamn spaceship and i'm telling you we should build a spaceship we should all have a lucky bike so we can all get around rapid and that's when we talk about this change within us as individuals and on, on a global scale we can all have these small vehicles to get about, but these should also be like spaceships to get about as well. And the first task for our spaceship, besides obviously developing the technologies such as life support systems, re recycling food, water, energy, all of this, you know, again by thorium, like our first mission should be to clear up the space junk around the Earth because at the moment we're all going to be locked in the Earth like a goddamn prison and the only people who can ever escape the Earth, even if we had all the money and power in the world, are these capitalist space agencies because they're the ones tracking all the space debris that they've littered all around the Earth. Go and Google and Google space junk. It's absolutely disgusting. So, yeah, that would be the first mission, clean up all the space junk shoot food the hungry people all of these things that we absolutely have to be talking to each other about it's it's only so good to goddamn to discuss the soviet union let's fucking move past this it's in the past let's start towards looking at the future let's plan the future let's get all these fucking astrophysicists hyped over how much they're gonna be able to look at the stars the people own the means of production let's invite these goddamn neuroscientists Name one neuroscientist right now who's a goddamn communist. You can't. I'm the closest thing to it. B-Dog, Brett, and my man Ryan. So, you know, we, we, we need these on board to look at how mirror neurons work, how, you know, neuroplasticity affects us on the capitalism. So it's not just theory, but we can actually see the practical results which these capitalist scientists love so much. So, I mean, yeah, I hope... There was some stuff there that resonated with you. I really thought that you found this interesting. We would absolutely 1 million percent love to hear your thoughts, good or bad. Rate us five stars and iTunes only five stars because, again, as I've mentioned earlier, I'm dead easy to upset and I will start crying.
But overall, the point is, Marxism is the science of revolution. Historical materialism shows us how history develops. It's not the be-all and end-all. We use Marxism to break out of capitalism. That's as simple as it is. If there's no longer capitalism, we don't need Marxism, but we still need to plan a future beyond it. This is one way in which I hope I interested some people. Have you got any thoughts on that, Brett? I mean, yeah, there's there's so much there. Um, I, I just touch on a, a couple points, um, and then I, I do have to get going because I have some a family thing in, in a little bit. Um, but I do want to touch on a couple points that you said. One is the idea of of human evolution and how that might already is changing, or how that might even change in the future um, during space exploration. And I think one way to think about it is that human beings have almost transcended uh, evolution in the way that other animals haven't right the, the, the natural limitations um all that that check evolution right natural selection in a lot of ways we've flown the coop on that like we've we've, we've gotten beyond um the the um, the immediate natural pressures in a lot of ways because of our technology and civilizational advances and you know one of the things that separates human beings from a lot of other animals is our conscious creativity right our life activity our ability to go out work on the world and create totally new things and so in some sense i think that the future of human evolution is going to be taken over by humans themselves is like we, we've developed the intelligence and the understanding of the evolutionary process that we can take conscious c- control over our own evolution and that might look like um, and this could be, you know, utopian or dystopian, depending on a lot of other variables, of course. But it might look like a, a slow merging with our own technology, um, you know, n- nanobots to to boost the immune system and clear out toxins, um, you know, bionic uh, limbs or organs like for the blind to, to see uh, things that, you know, we could put into our our bodies that make us uh, extend our, abil- our our five senses to something beyond just those five senses senses, right? So I think when we're talking about human evolution, it might very well be in the context of humans taking control over our own evolution. And that, of course, as I said, can be utopian or dystopian. And then the other thing I wanted to touch on is, is your idea of um, in, in, a, in a post-class society, in, in a communist future society, that Marxism will no longer be needed. And I think that's a really important point. Marxists literally want to get to the point where we don't need Marxism anymore. And there's, a, there's an interesting echo in Buddhism where where the Buddha talks about um, the Buddhist practice and the religion and the philosophy and the psychology of Buddhism being a raft. And you get on the raft and you use the raft to cross the river, right? And, and on the other side is enlightenment, uh, to be crude about it. <laughs> um, but once you get, once you're enlightened, once you become enlightened in the Buddhist sense, you you, you discard the, the the raft, right? You don't get to the other side of the of the river and pick the raft up and keep carrying it over land. You let go of it uh, because it served its purpose, and now it can be jettisoned. And that's the exact same thing with Marxism. That's how I think of myself as a Marxist. I'm a Marxist because I'm in this historical process that needs to be fulfilled, and Marxism is the mechanism by which we can fulfill and move beyond class society and the, I want I want to get to a point where I no longer have to be a Marxist um, it's a, it, you know at a, at a, eventually you 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 end your own um, philosophical outlook because the, the need for it has been transcended and there's something beautiful in that you know it's like you don't get that in other political philosophies um, they, all other political philosophies see themselves as existing in perpetuity as, a, as an ongoing thing but as dialectical materialists we want to get to a point where even the the Marxist project itself is really completed in 
and so there's no more need for it. And so those are just interesting ways, I think, to, to think about a couple of the things that you mentioned. And I, like I said, I can't get to everything you said, uh, but all of what you said is really interesting to, to dive deep on and, and think of the implications of, um, and we need to start having that future-oriented vision of, of what humanity could look like and, and busting people out of, um, as Ryan said earlier, the, the capitalist realism that acts as a containment on our political imagination. Thank you so much for your contribution and your time, Brett. It's hugely appreciated. It's been an absolutely incredible experience. Before we let you go, is there any plugs that you'd like to put in? You know, where can people find you? Where can they find your work, etc.? Yeah, first and foremost, I'll just say uh, thank you both so much for having me on. This has been a, a fascinating, lovely conversation and experience, and I'll walk away with it uh, continuing to think about the stuff that we talked about. I'm really humbled and honored uh, that you brought me on uh, your show to have this this conversation, and I'll release it on my feed as well so that um, my listeners can learn about your show and, and come and support it so we have a, a two-way traffic to each other's shows, and I think that's, that's a, a sort of solidarity that we can show to one another. But yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I'm deeply appreciative. If you're at all interested in, in my projects, you just have to go to, to revolutionaryleftradio.com. It shows both our podcasts, our Patreon, our, our YouTube page, etc. So that's where you can find me. Yes, people, one million percent, go and listen to RevLeft Radio. Go on to Red Menace, that's where you get all your theory. So interesting. I mean, it's literally one of the greatest gifts of to humanity right now. Ryan, would you like to say goodbye? Yeah, absolutely. Just that I, uh, you know, can't thank you enough. You know, you talk about how humbling it is for you, but I kind of feel like uh, we have much more, much more reason to feel that way. And um, it's definitely an honor to have you here. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Love and solidarity to both of you. And yeah, when, when you're when you're done with this, uh, just send it over and I'll release it on my RSS feed too, because I think this is a conversation that a lot of people will get a lot out of. Wow, yeah. We also hope that people get a lot out of it. But for now, until next time, workers and lumpen of the world, unite. Born in a competition with a feeling that something's missing. Bred in a corn addiction with a synthetic composition. On the brink of a civil war or the forming of one religion. I wonder what came first, dinosaurs or Darwinism? <laughs> Pledging allegiance to a flag since elementary. Writing curses and curses and casting spells, stung by the spelling bee. And they say, congratulations, you graduated. From slavery to paid slavery, you actually made it. Here, take this gown and cap and wave it. Like a celebration of going to school just to get a job to pay for it. Like a nation that traded its minerals in exchange for paper payment. Here, these are your gods, you have to praise them. I wonder who we worship if we weren't captured and traded. Consider this my affidavit. Yeah, it's the ruling class here to rule your ass. Prescription drug, thug, cocaine, you your ass. Agricultural skills sure would suit your ass. But they say living off the land is a useless past. Here, work for damn presidents. <laughs> Food your ass. Any revolutionaries, they remove your ass. Fast. Click, clack. Quick blast in a flash. Whiplash from the kickback or the impact. Push the shit back. As long as my head is intact, I'll be as political as I want because I get taxed. Nah, this ain't no fucking diss track. The diss track. A useless chit chat and syntax on whose ass is this fat and who has a six pack. Who's batting this average? Up my day, but I ain't even worried about your bitch asses. 
And it's quite the optic, hard to take your eyes off it. They make the sky toxic, prescribe the antibiotic, make a high profit, divide the margin. You could die off it. If you do, they hide the autopsy. What the fuck are you supposed to do? Morgellons in your kosher food. What the fuck is even kosher food? Third generation crops won't produce. Be careful who you keep close to you. I'm from Atlanta, but shouts out to my Oakland crew. They say Bobby Ray, the older you is overdue. I say, hey, sorry, I got a little caught up exposing truths. I used to think, what will Hover do? Not think, what the fuck will Macho Man and Hulk Hogan do? Now, if Steve Austin was America and The Rock was Afghanistan, then Russia and China would be Triple H and Illuminati would be Vince McMahon. Now, when the haters are the undertaker, The crowd doesn't stand a chance when the international bankers are walking through the stands. Slide your ass from Zan. You think you a fan, but you really just a lamb. Niggas start trends every day, but don't ever get no pair of vans. What the fuck is in advance? Niggas live on color people time. What the fuck is in advance? <laughs> I don't fucking understand. I just want my fucking bands. I'm a walking, talking human conundrum like a Muslim going ham. Looking for the promised land. False stories of Christopher Columbus holding Pocahontas' hand. Black history is the shortest month. I just hope you understand when the native Indians don't get shit. But Thanksgiving and some yams like, here, here's a few casinos. Huh? Sorry we took all your land. Huh? Well, let's just move on because America's great. Man, I fucking love it. Democratic or Republic. Lightning rod, change the subject. All of these religions, I'm glad I found one. All of these beliefs, and mine's the right one. Trying to process all of this info you hide from. Till you wait the fuck up, I don't need your advice, son. Culture and religion condition your mind, hun. Whatever's prohibited, I'ma defy them. The smell of freedom is making my eyes run. To authority, I'm the antithesis. I'm not a pacifist or a philanthropist. And I ain't got all the answers. I just got a louder mic and better stances, bitch. Oh, I'm sorry, did I offend you? What the fuck you think goes on at schools you send your kids to? What the fuck you think they serve for lunch? What's on the menu? That's my only ratchet shit is what these kids is into. A language comprehensible. Friends do what they friends do. People act so fucking hard, but really they just gentle. Psychological children. Grown-ups with issues. Grown-ups with children who grow up with issues. Cancer tissues, abandonment, misuse, subliminal marketing, screaming, here, let me fix you. I have the cure. I have the remedy. I am the savior. I am not the enemy. But give me your money. Give me your money. Give me your money. Everybody's in debt, but this is a free country. They dock your pay. What a mockery. Why you on the clock? Hickory dickory dockery. They want cable. They want coffee. They want comedy. Anything to take their mind off being property. Trying to say it properly, working on my tech, but I am the anomaly. They know I'm the shit like an heliocolonoscopy. They know I'm the shit by just looking at my discography. They know I've been sent to awaken this idiocracy. Mass media, hypocrisy, turn into a worker bee, harvest a honey tree. I'm just being honest, B.